Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I have a very special guest with me today. Uh, the host of the Forms podcast, Henry Wallace, is here to discuss with me Matthew 19 and uh, the concept of eunuchs in Jesus' teaching. Welcome, Henry. Thank you, Ariel. It's great to be here. Well, um, it's a pleasure having you. Your show is awesome. Uh, you have some, you've had some pretty heavy hitters on as guests, and, uh, and I really admire the work that you do. So, uh, excellent. Um, I'm just out here to extol the spiritual eunuch. Praise God, you know, praise God. And praise the eunuch, I guess. Um, <laughs> before, we get into, uh, uh, before we get into the scripture today, why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself and how faith plays a part in your life? Well, yeah, I'm uh, a pre-Raphaelite author, painter, and collector. I've been a uh, Orthodox Christian for a few years now. I was raised in an evangelical uh, background in the holiness movement. And then for a number of years, I was kind of drifting around between different denominations and not really practicing my faith. And then I encountered uh, Eastern Orthodoxy here in Western Europe. And uh, it really helped me with a lot of my personal problems, to be honest with you. I was going through a lot of depression, anxiety. And through the Orthodox Church, I was able to uh, take on certain spiritual practices that really helped me get my mind right, so to speak. So uh, I'm very thankful for that. And, um, you know, I have been studying Matthew 19 because we're constantly in this sort of culture war about gender, identity, and sexual orientation. Yeah. And the Bible is evoked often as this authoritative document which tells us exactly what we need to believe about these things. But when we go into the Bible to see, or say, what, what does it really say about you know, these, these matters, we find a world that is not like our own, with values that are not like our own, and with concepts that a lot of Christians have never heard of. So, I don't know, Ariel, have you ever heard anybody preach on this passage about the uh, three kinds of eunuchs in Matthew 19? I, so I've heard some, um, some sermons about this passage and, and also about passages um, that are elsewhere regarding eunuchs like Acts 8. And um, some of Paul's kind of writing seems to kind of dangle in that area too. Um, I think that it is grossly oversimplified, like most topics that that seem to be locked into our time period, uh, the transgender argument, the transgender debate, which seems to be very like of the moment, uh, pulling neat narratives and pulling neat morals out of an ancient book is, um, I think, largely a mistake. And so most of the people that I've heard preach on this don't really do a very good job of sussing out all the little details and all the little complexities about this particular issue. Um, also, I've heard people use it both as a cautionary kind of tale about gender variance and then also as a affirming 
uh, message of uh, you know Unix essentially being you know called to be Unix or to be you know that's like if you're uh, putting this into the transgender argument, the trans people were like born to be trans, and that's mm. like their identity in Christ that God has known all along. And you know, I think one of those is probably more right than the other, but ultimately, it's more complicated than than I think both of those uh, those positions. So when I when I approach the study of a particular passage of scripture, what I like to do is have this kind of outside in approach where we take the passage at its most general and surface level, and then we try to get deeper and more specific through successive readings, right? So mm-hmm. first what we do is we're going to read the passage, right? And go, we'll go through it line by line, you know, and we'll discuss it. And then we can talk about the eunuch and all these things, if you don't mind. Sure, sure. Which, um, for, for folks that are reading along at home... Uh, we're we're in Matthew 19. Which verse are we going to start at, and what will we be ending at? Oh yeah, so we are in uh, Matthew chapter 19, and in my um, sorry, one second. <clears throat> we're in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 15, and it, depending on what Bible you have, actually this passage will look different. So in some Bibles, you know, you just have chapter and verse numbers. And in some Bibles, there are subject headings. Yep. And something that people that read the Bible need to understand is that chapter numbers and verse numbers and subject headings are not original in the text. These are things that you know editors and publishers over time have added, and they might be you know, useful. But we have to also be able to put them aside and study the inherent literary structure of the text. So, first of all, what are we reading? We're reading the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, what is the Gospel of Matthew? The Gospel of Matthew is one of the four Gospels of the New Testament, right? What are the four Gospels of the New Testament? The four Gospels of the New Testaments are accounts of the doings and sayings of Jesus of Nazareth, right? They're divided into two groups. We have the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then we have the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we call the synoptic Gospels, They basically all cover the same content. They cover the same sorts of stories of the doings and sayings of Jesus, right? And they're all exoteric in nature. They're all teaching in such a way that if you don't know who Jesus is, you can read this narrative with these quotations and you can understand something about who is Jesus of Nazareth. Mm -hmm. The Gospel of John is esoteric in the sense that it's more mystagogic and theological in function, right? It's something that if you have faith in God, you can read and have some deeper insight about these, you know, stories and sayings of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. But to give somebody, in my view at least, personally, to give somebody the Gospel of John that doesn't believe even in God, they're going to be very confused, right? If somebody doesn't know who is Jesus, you should give them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and they read that and they know who is Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay, we have these three synoptic Gospels. Well, what's the difference between them? Well, Mark is very succinct. Mark is very simply written. It's mostly just Jesus did that and said that. And then, and then, and then, and then, and then. The Gospel of Luke is much more complex and refined, and it more follows the genre of an ancient history. And then the Gospel of Matthew, I mean, what most people are going to tell you is that it's a more Jewish in emphasis. It's specifically trying to uh, elaborate the Jewish elements in the narratives and the sayings of Jesus, right? So, you know, you can get really deep into this. A lot of scholars will say Mark is uh, more representative of what the earliest Christians would have had in terms of the first documents describing Jesus. We're not going to get into all that. Sure. One of the, the great things about reading the scriptures is that it allows for infinite 
attempts and if infinite readings, right? And so you can go into it and go into it and go into it. And the purpose of the scriptures for Christians is to have this spiritual exercise. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's why we do it, right? And, and so now we're situated in what is the Gospel of Matthew? Yeah. In chapter 19, we already know who Jesus is in the narrative, right? Jesus has been walking around for a while. He has enemies. He has friends. <laughs> he's well known. You see what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. So we're yeah. already kind of in the middle of his public ministry. Does that make sense in terms of the context before we actually get into the, the passages? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a sufficient um, bit of context. And I think that um, it's, yeah, it's important to note like where this is situated is uh, the way that, de- that Jesus teaches is well established at this point. The way that he talks is well established at this point. Um, the synoptic gospels are um, like very heavily, they almost read at times like an elementary education. There's a lot of, mm-hmm. the, the parables are essentially just kind of locked into those three, you know, with a little bit of fuzziness, they are, are kind of locked into the synoptic gospels. Um, you have uh, you have this guy who just seems to be blowing everybody away. And Matthew's really, really good at kind of making, so building this wisdom uh, that that we see from Jesus. We get long, long, long stretches of red text. Um, that's sort of a reference to the Bible that I usually use, which is the ESV. A lot of Bibles will put Jesus's uh, words in red text, and Matthew has just absolute pages and pages of it, where some of the Gospels don't do that as much, or Jesus it doesn't seem to be as talkative. But this uh, particular passage, the header, uh, I'm glad you brought up headers, because they can do a lot to skew what we might actually want to be learning from it because of the way that the authors put emphasis on certain topics. But that can happen in just a translational way, too, the way that people mm-hmm. choose to use certain English words in place of the Greek that was there in the first place can change how you're reading this a lot, and it can absolutely uh, skew or improve your interpretation of, of maybe what the original meaning was. But again, we have to take the Bible for what it is, and uh, trying to assume that we know the original meaning or we can always know the original meaning, I think, is a mistake, too. So um, let's, let's read. What's your preferred translation? I, have, I prefer the David Bentley Hart New Testament. It's ah, very of literal. Course. Of course. Yeah. And uh, it's very good because, to, to be really specific about the headings, in chapter 19, a lot of Bibles will divide this into three different headings, right? So what happens in chapter 19 is Jesus does some stuff, he crosses over a river, he encounters some enemies, he responds to the enemies, the apostles ask him some questions, he responds to the apostles, then the crowds try to bring him some children, the apostles say no, and then he says, let the little children come unto me, blah, 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 and then he leaves, right? Yeah. And so I take this, if we erase the chapters in the verse and the headings, we can see the structure of, we, ha- we know who the characters are, we have Jesus, we have his opponents, we have the crowd, we have the disciples, we already know the characters, right? The setting is established by him crossing over the river, doing stuff, and then leaving from the place, right? So for me, this should all be one story. (laughs) And these three elements, a lot of Bibles are going to say, you know, the first heading is Jesus teaches on marriage and divorce. And the second heading would be Jesus teaches about the eunuch. And the third heading would be Jesus uh, says, let the little children come unto me, right? And, you know, this is useful. Like if you're trying to scan through the Bible, it's not like they're bad, okay? It's just we have to be able to also put them aside sometimes and and understand this deeper literary structure. Yeah. So, uh, Ariel, do you want me to read it or do you want to read it? Uh, Why don't you read it in the David Bentley Hart translation? I uh, also picked um, sort of a bit of an oddball new translation. That's the uh, 
the N.T. Wright, Wright New Testament. Oh, New this Testament, is great. So. We got a great con- uh, contrast. So I'll, I'll read it right, really quick. So okay, the, we're starting it. from chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that when Jesus had done these sayings, he moved on from Galilee and entered the borders of Judea across the Jordan. And many crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees approached him to test him and said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? But in reply he said, Have you not read that the Creator from the beginning, quote, made them male and female? And said, quote, For this cause a man shall leave father and mother, and shall be joined fast to his wife, and they shall be two in one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God joined together, let no man separate. They say to him, Why then did Moses enjoin giving a writ of separation and divorcing? He says to them, Moses, on account of your hardness of heart, allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it did not happen thus. And I tell you that whoever divorces his wife, except for whorishness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples say to him, If such is the responsibility of a man with a wife, it is not profitable to marry. But he said to them, Not all can accept this saying, save those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who are born so from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who are gelded by men. And there are eunuchs who gelded themselves for the sake of the kingdom of the heavens. Let him who can accept this, accept it. And then the small children were brought to him, that he might lay hands upon them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Leave the little children be, and do not prevent them from coming to me, for of such is the kingdom of the heavens. And laying hands upon them, he departed from there. So I think, uh, Arrow, you can see why I wanted to read all of those verses in continuity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, splitting this all up is a mistake, and and I see the headers. Uh, N.T. Wright does a slightly better, I, I think, approach to the subject headers because he puts them to the side in the margins he doesn't oh, yeah, break good. up the text like with it but um it's important that uh, i noticed that the esv actually doesn't break out a header for the the bit about the eunuch that oh is, they, they no, they've that erased is, the eunuchs from history chunked right into the marriage oh. teaching uh and then it jumps right to uh let the children come to me so I mean that's a beautiful passage. Let little children yeah. come on. I mean I know why people want to look for that in the Bible. Obviously. Sure, sure, but it's there, right? right? And yeah. and so like you know I don't know that it really does us a service in splitting that up because mm-hmm. I do feel like that is a coherent chunk of text. Yeah, that to me feels like it all kind of fits together. Um, the uh, the first thing that popped out at me at I was reading this earlier in the week, but um, the use of horishness there is interesting. Uh, David Bentley Hart's translation is known to be closer, I think, in the sort of pithier uh, word choice, tra- uh, tr- you know, translational word choices. Yeah, he's that he not... Um, he doesn't You know, the King James words. Version uh, translators were doing it to be read in church. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of their um, choices, they'll, they'll do it so that when you read it publicly, you're not, like, embarrassed. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't want to read out whorishness in the middle of your Sunday morning. It's a little bit... Yeah, sexual Gosh. immorality is where most translations. Yeah, that's, line, that's very line calm. You know, if you say sexual yeah. immorality and money, people just feel bad; they won't be titillated. <laughs> but I feel like that's also um, maybe a little too imprecise, and yeah. it, it has more to do, I think, with what Jesus is saying with infidelity more than yeah. it has to do with just like being a sexual deviant in general. Um, yeah, Jesus doesn't actually I mean, it's, it's teach clear that, that he's saying like, look, if the marriage is already busted. Yeah, because people are sleeping around. You know what I mean? 
then you can have a divorce and you know move on with your life but for any other reason if you do that and you remarry it's on you man mm-hmm. you know yeah now I, now to kind of pause really quick before we get into all those details i know we can't hit every detail right but i do want to emphasize one other thing about the text so if we go back right we see that we have the crowds following him around we have the pharisees approaching him we have the disciples asking him questions we have the children approaching him right so there's two groups of approaching. There's the Pharisees approaching at the beginning, and then the children who are brought to him at the end. And in the middle, the, the, uh, the disciples ask him a question, right? Mm-hmm. So we actually have multiple different people doing stuff. It's a very you know, complicated little passage here. And I think what's important to, you know, people could go in and like, what does it mean to cross uh, across the Jordan? I mean, that's a very rich concept in the Bible. If you go back in the Hebrew Bible, you can find lots of, meaning and symbolism about crossing the river jordan and you know what i mean Mm. there's lots of we could talk about that for like an hour you know what i mean (laughs) but we don't have to i just want to point things out that people are listening they want to study go back and study in the bible what does it mean to cross the river jordan right Mm. because the people that are hearing this text right the people that know the more that you know about the scriptures the richer it will be uh okay so let's move on so they're, they're talking about the mosaic law and the law about divorce right and so basically the way it would work is like if you're my wife I can just get rid of you at any time. I can just give you a writ of divorce and it's done. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I can that just was give the you understanding. Thing. Yeah, that was the understanding yeah. under you know under the the covenant that God had had and the law that God had handed down to the people of Israel, right? And and so Jesus is, or even earlier in Matthew, we see Jesus as like saying, "Look, I'm not negating those rules that were that were handed down before. I'm saying that like this is." This is going to be a more general message to all of you. But it's also important to note that the Pharisees are asking these questions of Jesus not because they think he's the wisest man on you no, know on they're earth. They're trying to trip him up. They're exactly. This is move. this is like a, they're trying to d- debate him essentially. They they're and the relationship again of all the debates. People, we could talk an hour about just that. You know what I yeah. mean? You could go into a deep a deep reading of all the different times <laughs> where this encounter occurs. You know? Sure. Sure. Uh, but in the interest of time, yeah, but in the interest of time, we'll just continue. <laughs> I think what is important, though, relating to the eunuch specifically, because I think what we really want to talk about is this part about the eunuch, is that in this passage, we have, um, I'm going to use the term sexuality and gender as a shorthand, even though I don't think these terms are actually relevant in the original culture, mm-hmm. right? I'm just yeah. going to kind of do it from our cultural perspective. Sure. We're talking about sexuality in three different ways. We're talking about uh, married people, male and female. We're talking about this kind of strange category of the eunuch. And then we're talking about uh, children, right? And it's bookended with the uh, male and female and the children. And then the eunuch is in the middle. So Mm -hmm. we go marriage, eunuch, children. And what happens is with the marriage, what he's saying is that, you know, Moses said, but I say. Yeah. And the reason he gives on the kind of this I say is that in the story of Genesis of the creation of man, it's two become one. The movement is from two to one, right? So there's two that become one flesh, right? And in the Genesis story, I mean, this is, again, a thing we could talk about for a long time, but my reading, at least, would be that Adam and Eve begin in a childlike state. Like, they're in a state of innocence in the garden. They're the first people, they're newly created they're they're kind of like infants in a way. You see what I'm saying? 
Yeah. They're not fully wise and mature and grown. They don't really have any experience. They're just brand new in the world, right? And this state of the garden is also a state of innocence, right? Which we normally associate with childhood. So we begin with the state of talking about these two people who are like childlike innocent. And we end with this part about being childlike and innocent. But then in the middle, there's this figure of the eunuch, right? So how does this work? We have in Genesis and the creation of the world, the two that become one. At the end, we have the little children of such as the kingdom of the heavens, right? So I think we can think about like purity and innocence in a way here. You see what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. there's clearly some, I think this element is obvious. But what about the eunuch, right? So he, let, let's go into that. So there's three categories of eunuchs. There's those who are born eunuchs, those who were made eunuchs by other people, and those who made themselves eunuchs. I mean, what do you think about that categorization? Well, I think it, it's it's accurate to what was you know what would have been historically happening at that time, and and the way that eunuchs are presented um, elsewhere in the Bible show that eunuchs were not um, freaks of nature or treated that way necessarily. Um, that I think people think of like uh, now as like an intersex person as like uh, having some sort of a congenital defect or something along those lines that mm. that would have caused them to not necessarily carry uh, male type characteristics or female type characteristics. Um, this was just a, a a group of people that existed. Some of them in in nobility. Essentially, they they were part of a of a, a king's court or a queen's you know court. So, um, the point of Jesus bringing this up is a little fuzzy to me because I see how it plays into the conversation about marriage, but it almost comes off as seeming like this is like an anti, almost an anti-marriage message. Something that because Paul, the di- disciples say, if it if this is what it means to be married, like the, if the standard of marriage is this high, it's a bad idea. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If you can only get rid of your wife for basically her cheating on you, as we would say today, right? then how am I supposed to do this? Yeah. Well, and Paul right. Paul mentions this very thing. I mean, it's like marriage is there because it's better to do that mm. than to uh, live in whorishness, uh, yeah. to use the phrase. But um, it's better to do but that. But Jesus than doesn't to... tell him, hey, no, you're wrong. Actually, it's better yeah. to be married. Mm-hmm. He says, yeah, actually, you're Not right. all can accept the <laughs> saying, save to those whom it is given. Yeah. For there are eunuchs who are born eunuchs, blah, blah, blah. Let him who can accept this, accept it. Mm -hmm. So this is not, you know, sometimes people talk about calling and like, I'm called to this, I'm called to that. You know, when uh, St. Jerome comments on this passage, he talks about Jesus as announcing uh, like a a general to the troops, like rousing them, like challenging them, you know. Like, this is a calling that's a universal calling. Everybody is called. Let him who can accept it, accept it, is a generic call. It's not a call to only some people, right? It's you saying, if saying? you can, if you can do this, you know, let us set this saying, bar extraordinarily high. He's not saying, hey, if you're born a eunuch, okay, be a eunuch. Yeah. That's not what he's saying. Because there's three kinds of eunuchs, and only the final kind is really valorized. Mm-hmm. It's not that the others are dismissed as, you know, evil or anything. I'm just saying that the third kind of those who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom, that's the, you know, that's the emphasis, right? Yeah. To make yourself, I mean, to say, okay, some people are born this way, some people are made this way. I mean, that, you know, we can talk about that. 
but people who make themselves this way or behave or behave in that way right yeah the, the the use of eunuch doesn't necessarily mean these are people that have had their genitalia removed necessarily or have had some sort of but some people uh, interpret oh, it that way a hundred percent and and that there is, were people that literally did this that yes, read this passage and absolutely. then were like okay i need to i need to do that you know, there were people that read it that way. Yeah, of course. And you wouldn't be wrong to necessarily read it that way, but it's not necessarily right to read it that way. There are people. I, who I would say that it's a mistake. Though. And the reason I would say it's a mistake to read it that way is because the overall emphasis of the text is on calling people to a kind of spiritual purity in their, their sexual relations, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Right. So the marriage, right. Jesus is calling people to a higher standard of marriage. You see what I'm saying? He's calling yeah. people to a higher standard. And that it's bookending it with, you know, that for such about the children for such as the kingdom of the heavens, right? So the children are obviously living in a kind of angelic innocence, right? That that's what they represent. And the eunuch is in here as this kind of, you know, you said earlier something about the eunuchs were not considered to be freaks. Well, mm-hmm. some people definitely considered them to be freaks. Sure. Some oh, yeah. people in the ancient world definitely considered them to be an unnatural. And for them can, to be considered in all kinds of strange ways, which we can talk about in a minute if you want. Sure. But I think it's important to understand two other aspects of this text before we go on to the, the, the rest of the cultural context and how this was received. The first is that in uh, the, the prophet Isaiah, this is in Isaiah 56. He says, uh, Thus saith the Lord, keep ye judgment and do justice, for salvation is near to come and righteousness to be revealed. This is a prophetic text. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth on hold to it, that keepeth of the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbath, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house, within my walls, a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off, etc., etc., right? So, you see this promise. There's a prophecy for the eunuch, right? And then where is this prophecy fulfilled? The prophecy is fulfilled in the Acts of the Apostles when Philip is on on the road to Mm -hmm. Gaza yeah. And he meets the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Now, what is an Ethiopian eunuch, right? Ethiopia is in Africa. It's uh, you know an African country that has some ancient ties with Israel. They're actually Jews living in Ethiopia. They're called Beta Israel. And uh, this guy from Ethiopia, this uh, courtier of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, right? He had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Mm-hmm. And he was now going back to Ethiopia. And he was sitting in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, approach this chariot and accompany it. And running up, Philip heard him reading Isaiah and said, do you really understand the things you are reading? And he said, unless someone will guide me, how indeed could I? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. And this was the passage he was reading. He was led like a sheep to slaughter. And just as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so does it not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was robbed of a fair hearing. Who will tell of his posterity? You see? Who will tell of his posterity? He's a eunuch. He has no posterity. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. 
a dry tree. For his life is taken from the earth. He's a dry tree. Yeah. And speaking directly to Philip said, I ask you about whom does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? And opening his mouth, Philip, beginning with this scripture, announced him to, the, to him the good tidings of Jesus. And as they were traveling along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch says, look, water, what prevents me being baptized? And Philip said, uh, it is possible if you have faith with all your heart. And in reply, he said, I have faith that Jesus, the anointed, is God's son. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down to the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, a spear of the Lord seized Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, for he went on his way rejoicing. Now, what is happening in this passage? It's the fulfillment of the prophecy about the eunuch, about the dry tree. The eunuch is associated with the outcast, the other, the 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 excluded, the 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 uh, separate, right? Literally, the cut off. You see what hmm. I'm saying? Yeah. The eunuch is associated with the one who is cut off, and God is promising to the eunuch that if you have faith, that not only I, I will not only will I give you equality with those who have sons and daughters, you know, not only will I give you equality with people who are not cut off. I will give you a greater name. I will give you a greater inheritance. You see? Mm-hmm. And this is what he's bringing. The Ethiopian eunuch from this African uh, man who has uh, been cut off, literally and figuratively, he is now grafted in. He's now restored. He's now been baptized into the promise. You see? Mm-hmm. And, and so the eunuch has this very interesting function because this is an icon of the church. Right? This is a verbal icon of the church. All of the, this, this man who was, you know, from a different place, etc., etc., is now being brought in. And this is the case of all of us, right? So the eunuch is actually a universal figure in Christian theology. It's not this freak marginal figure. I wanted okay. to mention that there's a parallel here. There's a reason why Jesus um, speaks this way about eunuchs. And it, it's because... In their lives, in their uh, the way that they lived out their lives and and interacted with others, they were sexless, kind of in the way that Jesus was, that Jesus operated. Um, we don't hear about Jesus having a wife, though. There's some like, you know, Gnostic gospels and stuff like that 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 might allude to it or something. Ultimately, the canonical Bible that we have gives us no indication that Jesus even had a sex drive, right? So. In that way, eunuchs reflect, and that's, I think, is why it's especially uh, notable that he, he uses this example of people who make themselves eunuch for the sake of the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. In behavior, Jesus was that way, and, and that was the most, uh, that was the, you know, the kind of eunuch that you'd want to be. Not, you, know, you don't necessarily want this thrust upon you. You want to achieve the greatness. Mm-hmm. And this is an, in radical contradistinction counter, counter to prevailing norms within the broader culture, right? Because now, now we're going to kind of shift a little bit to the context stuff again. Mm-hmm. So this text, you know, we could go on and on about all the allusions to Isaiah and the Acts and all the stuff. We don't have time to do that. So I encourage people to spend time and dig in. But I want to talk, if we can, about some of the way this text was received historically, if you don't mind. You sent me an excerpt from um, the book uh, was called The Manly Eunuch. Yeah, there's a manly eunuch by a, a scholar, a Foucauldian uh, scholar called Kuffler. 
And this book is very interesting for anybody interested in this topic. It's very comprehensive. So if you want to study the eunuch and study the eunuch in especially Western Christian theology, this is a very good book to to get. Um, and basically, I'm just going to read a, a quote here from the beginning, right? Actually, let me, let, me say, let me say something. There is debate ongoing today about what is the difference between male and female, right? What is it? What is a woman, right? Yeah. And people assume that it's always been the case that uh, there have been two genders and all this stuff, right? But there are contemporary gender theorists, for example, the, the French feminist Monique Wittig, who argues that actually there's only one gender, female, and that male is a universal category. Are you familiar with this? I haven't heard that, no. No. So, for example, Monique Wittig is a radical lesbian feminist and will argue that lesbians aren't women because they reject the sort of female gender category. Right? Interesting. So this is, I mean, this is just one figure. There's other figures we could talk about. Sure. But in the ancient world, at least this is Kuffler's argument, and I think he's right, is that there was really one gender in the ancient world also. That was female. And male was considered to be universal and just representative of what it means to be human. Hmm. And the eunuch is in this way a kind of perverse and uh, troubling figure for the Roman uh, cultural conception of sexuality, so to speak. Again, I'm using sexuality loosely. I don't really think they thought about it in this way, but I'm going to, if you don't mind, Ariel, I want to read a passage from this book. So this is from the, the first chapter called Masculine Splendor. Roman notions of sexual difference relied heavily on the absoluteness of the divide between male and female. Notions of moral character, of virtue and vice, were directly linked to sexual difference, and social rights were expressed as deriving from masculine superiority and feminine inferiority. Gender ambiguity of any sort was an unsettling proposition, and as much as possible was explained away. The gender ambiguity of the eunuch was not so easily erased, however, and the presence of eunuchs therefore disturbed and challenged those notions of the absolute divide between male and female. Now, what does that sound like to you, Ariel? Hmm. Sounds like our society. <laughs> right? I suppose, so, yeah. I um, mean, if you sub out eunuch for certain other categories of people, you can see it's the same thing, that there, there are these certain people in society that freak people out. Right, yeah. that they don't want to think about. They want to explain away as quickly as possible because it upsets their, you know, what they're comfortable thinking about. So this is this is a direct quote um, from the historian Ammianus Marcellinus. Julian must be reckoned a man, vir, that's the Latin word, of her heroic stature, conspicuous for his glorious deeds and his innate majesty. Philosophers tell us that there are four cardinal virtues. Virtues, right? It's manliness is the category, really. Mm. And to be virtuous is to be a man. <laughs> you following me, Ariel? Yeah. That's how literal this, this ancient uh, thought was. I mean, you can, I'll skip ahead here, but the, the idea of the eunuch in ancient Roman society is kind of like a luxury item in a way. You know, to have a eunuch serving you, you know what I mean? Eunuchs were used because you know for different reasons uh one of the ways that eunuchs was used it was to attend upon women because even though obviously eunuchs could still engage in sexual activity being a gelded so to speak they don't actually have the ability to like screw up the uh you know 
the whole uh, inheritance and all this yeah. stuff. You yeah. see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So the eunuchs are used for various reasons. We don't have time to get into all the ways that eunuchs are uh, used here. Sorry, I just lost my notes. Da, 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 da. Oh. Oh yeah, so let, let me, uh, da, 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 da. Uh, sorry, one second. I'm sorry, I'm screwing this up. Yeah, I have you, I have a very capable editor and we'll, we'll clean everything up, it's, it's no problem. We'll clean everything up. Sorry, I my notes, a, I've been, I've been using a new note system and I've, it's fucking up. Um, okay, so I'm gonna read now from uh, Blessed Augustine of Hippo who talks about the problem of sexual ambiguity for hermaphrodites. <clears throat> Quote, as for androgenes, also called hermaphrodites, they are certainly very rare, and yet it is difficult to find periods when there are no examples of human beings possessing the characteristics of both sexes, in such a way that it is a matter of doubt how they should be classified. However, the prevalent usage has called the masculine, assigning them to the better sex. Right? Mm-hmm. So the, the, the basic idea, and to kind of summarize, is that in, in ancient Roman society, uh, women were just considered to be inferior in general. Like women's blood wasn't as hot. Uh, women didn't have as many teeth. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's all these things about women just being purely inferior, right? Women are even... Um, uh, what's Actually, I'll continue with reading about the eunuch. Uh, this is a different a Roman source saying, quote, whether hermaphrodite can witness a will depends on his sexual development. Right? So whether you can actually have a legal role in society is depending on your, you know, how your members are developed, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this is all deep into the culture. And there's actually religious elements as well about different gods, you know, like uh, the hermaphroditus uh, myth about Hermes and Aphrodite. I mean, you can go and, and read in all this stuff. And there is this kind of, Basically, the sexual system of ancient Rome is such that uh, women are inverted men. Yeah. Like the, 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 the female member is the inversion of the male member. It's literally an inverted penis. <laughs> That's literally the way they talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and, and you, right. see, you see that kind of reflected in, in um, the second creation of Genesis 2 and on where you know Eve is created out of out of Adam, basically, like uh, women are just a, uh, an extension of men, and serve. Well, I would I, I wouldn't read that into Genesis. I'm specifically talking about pagan Roman culture. No, no, and but I'm, actually, don't ahead. you think? Don't you think the creation stories like this were? I mean, there's there's a creation story in every belief system, right? And mm-hmm. each one of them had an explanation for why things were the way that they were, and mm. so that belief that um, that belief of maleness as the default or male maleness as like the honorific. Uh, or the honored position in society is like one that was more universal at the time than it had to do with like a, a particular uh, belief system in this religion or these gods. It was something that was uh, more widespread than that. Mm. Well, I mean, I, I suppose um, in my own study, I've been focused mostly on this particular cultural context mm-hmm. of the Roman Empire. So I can't really speak more broadly than that. But I do know that essentially the, the way that the gender and sex system would work is that you have men who are truly human. So like a great man represents what it means to be a true human being, you see. 
he represents all the manly virtues because virtue is just what it means to be manly. You see what I'm saying? To be manly and to be virtuous is the same thing. Women are uh, weaker and uh, have basically a negative connotation. This is why you know people like Monique Wittig, etc., will call just talk about one gender, right? You have this one gendered view where the woman is kind of this negated category. And then the eunuch occupies this ambiguous half-man or unmanly man category, right? There are people talking about, you know, uh, quote, uh, that their condition is not part of human nature or unmanliness is not a disease, but uh, the vice of a corrupted mind, right? <laughs> so there's, there's like this kind of... Uh, there's different ways that people try to account for this. But clearly, I mean, as we saw in Augustine, it's not clear to them what to do with this, right? And what's really interesting is that when you look at how the early church received the, these, this text we were just reading from Jesus, what they do is this incredible move where they take all of this Roman cultural baggage and they twist it. <laughs> So the eunuch goes from this freakish reminder of this exceptional, errant remainder in the, in the society to a laudatory symbol of sacrifice, right, and virtue. Mm -hmm. So now the eunuch, right, is the man who's mastered himself. And Augustine and many other early church fathers, Jerome, Ambrose, will all talk about this. They'll talk about, you know, if you want to be a real man, you know, you don't beat somebody else up. You bring your own passions into subjection and you become a spiritual eunuch. And then the spiritual eunuch becomes this symbol of Christian masculinity. But even more bizarrely, it's now opened both to men and women. There are many examples of saints who basically pass themselves off as eunuchs in order to escape their father. So, you know, the father, the great authority. I mean, Roman fathers had an incredible amount of patriarchal authority. Hmm. You know, they could they could make people get divorced against their will <laughs> at different at different points in Roman history. A father could just kill his children legally, right? Yeah, if they displeased him. And so, women want to escape from this oppressive patriarchal authority, right? They don't want to do that. They want to have a spiritual life. They don't want to be some guy's wife. They want to pursue uh, monasticism. They want to pursue some kind of spiritual calling. So, what they'll do is they'll cut their hair. They'll put on men's clothes. They'll run away. They'll say, my name isn't Priscilla, my name is Priscillus or whatever. <laughs> and they'll say, well, and I'm just a eunuch. Yeah. And they'll pass themselves off as eunuchs in society. And these people are appraised as great saints and frequently in these stories. It's only on their deathbed that their secret is discovered, right? <laughs> yeah. Or there's even cases of, a, of one of these, uh, these girls who runs away from her father. Her father is then in grief because his daughter ran away. And starts going to this monastery. And it turns out that his spiritual father was his daughter that ran away. And then when she gets sick and dies, he buries her. And then he takes her place in the monastery. You see? That's she beautiful. sons her own father by becoming a eunuch. Do <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Because this is part of the Christian message. Is the Christian message isn't, oh, I'm going to have tons of kids and you know reproduce and have a dog and a white picket fence. The Christian message is I'm going to be a martyr. So whether or not you're going to get married and have a family, you know, like I'm a married man, I have a, a child, 
But I'm still called to be a spiritual eunuch. I'm still called to a life of martyrdom. Mm -hmm. But being a spiritual eunuch doesn't mean I cut myself off in according to the flesh. It means I circumcise my heart. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think that, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, what you're, yeah, you're referring to uh, cutting yourself in that way. Basically, you are putting your desires and sort of sinful nature under subjection and sort of dominating them. And so in that way, the eunuch represents the ultimate realization of that sort of self-control, basically, is the, the short short phrase for it. It's not just self-control. It's what it means to be a Christian man, but, uh, right? yeah, I mean, that's, which is that's a universal category, yeah. uh-huh. right? It's a, So according to, the, again, I'm talking about the Latin doctors of the church, so Jerome, Ambrose, Augustine, Gregory... All of these these guys, if you read in the Manly Eunuch, you can get all the quotes for yourself. They all think that uh, Christian women should be manly. <laughs> Christian men should be manly. And to be manly is to be a spiritual eunuch. So all this masculinity stuff, all the masculinity preachers, they just need to know that what they need to be telling young men is uh, to clean their room and become a spiritual eunuch. <laughs> well, I mean, like like a lot of misguided Christianity in the modern day, uh, people will pluck passages from the Old Testament out of context or, or lacking context or not considering the New Testament along with it. So when, you know, Christian families are, oh, well, we were called to, um, you know, be fruitful and multiply, right? So that's why I'm having f- uh, 15 kids. Look, personal choice, not my, not my place to judge. But I do think that, like, you're, you're much more on point in saying that that's not necessarily the message of christianity it was in the scriptures and and it's not we don't ignore that but like that's not the message of the new testament that's not the message of the i mean you know what you know what saint jerome says if you read in saint jerome's letter against jovinian what jerome says is that sexual reproduction was given to man after the as as a result of the fall basically on account of the fall so that mankind would not die uh, in despair, right? So that man could reproduce like an animal until the coming of Christ who gives uh, mankind hope for victory over death, right? And now that Christ has come as Christians, we have no need to sexually reproduce. So it's not wrong to have, to get married and have children, Sure, but that's not, you know... For, for Jerome, Jerome says stuff like, my seed is a hundred times more fertile, right? I'm the truly, I'm the one who's truly multiplied because I have many spiritual children, you see? And he, I mean, he's a monk, by the way, I should have mentioned this. Jerome is a monk, right? So he's a celibate. Yeah, this is, this is part of what um, the passages that you sent over from uh, the manly eunuch, who's the manly eunuch, right? Yeah. Um, part of the part of the passages that you sent over from the manly eunuch had a reference to in in a pagan culture context, not necessarily in the Christian cultural context, or at least not maybe early on. But uh, it seems like uh, these pagan cultures that had eunuchs were seen as like a fertile, not in a sexual reproduction way, but in a way that they uh, they have given themselves over entirely to to grow the church to be like soil for yeah. for the the faith to grow jerome compares celibate celibacy um like compares marriage and celibacy like gold to silver the fruit of the tree to its root uh the grain of the field to the stock right so marriage for him is just clearly inferior he's not against marriage like he says you know 
I praise, uh, you know, wives for coming in second after virgins, right? And I praise uh, childbearing because it gives virgins, right? Yeah. But it's actually the spiritual eunuch as a form of life that is the highest sort of ideal. And we can think about this again in the, this context of manliness. Again, if we can sort of intuit this ancient worldview, um, you know, the, the, the celibate, the people who choose to be eunuchs, the, cho- the people who choose to um, take on this spiritual battle, they're like heroes. They're, they're the star athlete. They're the uh, valorous soldier, right? They're the commandos of the, the, the church militant. Spiritually, right? yeah, spiritually. Spiritually, right. yeah. Not physically, because these people were frequently lacking muscle tone and kind of wayfish and i mean that i mean this is written in their documents you can see people saying you know if you're struggling with lust you know if you don't eat a lot you know that will go away (laughs) yeah i mean there's crazy stuff there there are stories of saints who in a dream have uh their basically uh sexual desire like burning coals removed from their body like an angel from by an angel excuse me Mm -hmm. right like an angel comes with tongs and removes the burning coals from their body, which represent their lustful desires, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, there are also negative aspects. Like there's obviously this ancient conception of male and female, even though the, Christ- the early Christians are twisting it and playing with it. And I think doing something liberatory with it in the terms of, you know, opening this avenue up to women, there's also a way in which they reinscribe their own cultural values, Right. So Jerome will also talk about how marriage, you know, effeminates a manly spirit, right? And we might have to do a little bit of cultural translation unpacking of this teaching, right? Sure. But I mean, this is radically different to, to what people think today. I think you can agree with me, Aaron. Yeah, of course it is. And, and, and I think that the, the breaking point that we're at right now or, or that sort of like surge that we're in right now in this discourse about... Uh, gender uh is is fed by a lot of cultural factors and you know trans people even in the the modern sense of trans uh we weren't really transgender until like 40 or 50 years ago before that they would have been referred to as transsexuals transvestites but essentially operate in the same modern headspace of changing oneself in one's identity over from one to another now, of course, the non-binary issue is a whole other thing, and I think probably... I, I honestly think we can't really compare the It's impossible. Because to. they're completely different, right? Yeah. And, and this is part of my personal theological project is to say, okay, well, what does the Bible actually talk about in a very clear and unambiguous way? What can we know about uh, the teaching about gender and sexuality and all these things? And I think what it's interesting is it actually calls into question heterosexual relations, Right. It doesn't call into yeah. question all this homosexual, transgender, non-binary stuff. Uh, not in an immediate sense. At least when you just read it, uh, at least the, the way I do, what's being called into question is, first of all, heterosexuality. That's the thing that hits me up over the head. The conceptions of marriage in these texts of the Holy Fathers and in Holy Scripture are nothing like what's being preached by Jordan Peterson and <laughs> the people that promote him. It's just nothing like it. It's completely yeah. radically different. Now we want to talk about the transgender, the non-binary. We can talk about that, but first let's deal with the act. You know the things that are the most spoken of, which is marriage. I mean, what kind of marriage looks like this? This is not how Christians are treating marriage. 
How many Christians are talking about becoming a spiritual eunuch? These are clear and unambiguous teachings. Right? Yeah. Anything about non-binary people, that's way down the line in terms of interpretation. That's going to take us like 100 hours to read the <laughs> scriptures to get to that. You see what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah, and we may never really get to it because, again, this is a this is a, a, a concept in our mind that I can see why where we are today, people will look back at Unix and say, oh, it's kind of like this or it's kind of like this. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's yeah, it you can't. You just can't draw that distinction out. Yeah, you not can't enough just pretend that it's our culture. Yeah. It doesn't, the eunuch is not the trans person. It's not the non-binary person. It's a different category. It's a category that doesn't really exist today. Mm-hmm. But and that's while, also part of why it's interesting to study because we can make a kind of general statement about how should Christians think about sex and gender mm-hmm. and our identity. And then we have to, from that, right, apply it to the particulars of these new gender and sexual expressions yeah you see what i'm saying it's um common for anyone to okay so you can look back at ancient cultures and see reflections of what we interpret as gender variation across time throughout history right uh and it's that sort of like chronological snobbery mindset that we're in now to say oh well they just didn't really know what they were doing that now we have words for everything we've got a flag for everything so yeah this they're just like me or that was just like uh, what was happening uh, in that, you know, this is just like what's happening in that day. It's foolish. And, uh, you know, if you're using this passage to have any part of that dialogue, you have to be really careful because note that it begins with a conversation about marriage and it ends with a conversation about children, like you said earlier. Mm-hmm. And there's also, I mean, I didn't really want to talk about all of the gender and sex stuff because there's a lot of topics. There's just a reality that things today are actually much more rigid than they were in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Like there are, there are passages, I'm trying to pull it up right now. There are passages in Augustine's writings where he talks about his friendships that were corrupted by, uh, what does he say, the black waters of lust or something. It's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? You know what I mean? Yeah. But I, I just think it's just the reality that people were not worried about, you know, they didn't think about their orientation or anything. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's just a different culture with different concerns. And so when we approach the scriptures, when we approach the text, we need to approach it on its own terms. You know, if you go looking for a a teaching of Jesus about the non-binary, you're not going to find it. Because even the (laughs) the eunuch is not a non-binary category. The eunuch is this weird half-man category in Roman culture. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. The eunuch is this cut-off category. Yeah. The excluded category. And what Jesus does is he affirms it by sort of flipping what our expectations are in their head. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. He flips it. You wouldn't be able to find a coherent teaching about maleness from Jesus either. Um, That doesn't seem to be a topic that he's terribly interested in. He's not worried about telling people how to clean their rooms and get dates. (laughs) That is not what he's interested in. Do you mind if I um, go back to the passage? Uh, it of looks course. like you're, you're, you're looking something up right now. So I was just going to read the N.T. Wright translation for a little bit of contrast. Oh, yeah, read the N.T. We'll Wright stuff, yeah. You know, it couldn't, uh, couldn't hurt to... You could just read it over a hundred times, you know, and, and probably yeah, take something different away from it every time. Um, so uh, starting at 19.1. So, so this is what happened next. When Jesus had finished saying all this, he went away from Galilee and came to the region of Judea, 
across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees approached him with a trick question. Is it lawful, they asked, for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Haven't you read, he replied, that the Creator from the beginning made them male and female? And this is what he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. As a result, they are no longer two but one flesh. So humans shouldn't split up what God has joined together. So then, they asked, why did Moses give the regulation that one should give a woman give the woman a certificate of divorce and make the separation legal? Moses gave you this instruction about how to divorce your wives, replied Jesus, because your hearts were hard, uh, but that's not how it was at the beginning. Let me tell you this. Anyone who divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to Jesus, if that's the situation of a man with his wife, it would be better to not to marry. Not everyone can accept this word, replied Jesus, only people it's given to. You see, there are some eunuchs who are that way from birth. There are some who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are some who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. If anyone can receive this, let them do so. Then children were brought to Jesus for him to lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples spoke sternly to them, but Jesus said, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them. They are, uh, they are the sort the kingdom of heaven belongs to. And he laid his hands on them. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, there's a resource I'd recommend to all your listeners. It's called katenabible.com. It's a free uh, app. There's also like a phone app, C-A-T-E-N-A Bible. And what's really interesting about this is you get a uh, verse-by-verse uh, Bible layout, and you can click a verse and get commentary from the early church fathers. So I want I want to read some commentary about this eunuch passage, if you don't mind. Please. So I'm, I'm going to read the, the, the uh, commentary of Jerome. A wife is a grievous burden. It is not permitted to put her away except for the cause of fornication. For what if she be a drunkard, an evil temper, of evil habits? Is she to be kept? The apostles, perceiving this burdensomeness, express what they feel. His disciples say unto them, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But let none think that wherein he adds, Save to them who it is given, that either fate or fortune is implied, as though they were virgins only whom chance had led to such a fortune. For that is given to those who have sought it of God, who have longed for it, who have striven that they might obtain it. That he says, therefore, Save they to whom it is given shows that unless we receive the aid of grace, we have not strength. But this aid of grace is not denied to such as seek it. For the Lord says above, ask and you shall receive. He speaks of three kinds of eunuchs, of whom two are carnal and one spiritual. One, those who are born of their mother's womb. Another, those whom enemies or courtly luxury has made so. And a third, who have made themselves so for the kingdom of heaven, and who might have been men, but become eunuchs for Christ. You see, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. To them the reward is promised. For to the others whose continence was involuntary, nothing is due. What, what do you think about that commentary of St. Jerome? Uh, it's, well, it's very funny uh, listening to it now, obviously, <laughs> but, he, you know, it's, it's not meant to be. I think that um, the thing that I'm hanging up on in that and, and just reading back through it again is not everyone can receive this, only those whom it is given. Um, mm -hmm. which implies a kind of chosenness in almost like a Calvinistic way 
uh, of like you're predetermined to hear this and to well, be Jerome just to. refutes that. Jerome's like, don't if you if it's not a question of fortune or fate. You need to ask. You need to strive. Sure, but if you weren't already um, meant to receive that, then you wouldn't have the capacity to even strive, right? Or am I? Mm. Am I? And I'm not a Calvinist, so I'm not. No, but I'm this not trying is to make this, this is something that people debate because people, yeah. a lot of people, want to say, well, you know, my uh, lust for my smoking hot wife is natural, right? And that's good, you know. <laughs> and so, real marriage means that my wife needs to learn how to, you know, hit the male G spot, and you know, do whatever I ask. I mean, this is things that you know certain evangelicals preach. Sure. And um, there's this conception that well, my desires as a man, you know, as long as I'm straight, that's natural, that's good, right? That's just not the way the Bible talks about it. No. The Bible thinks that your desire, like lustful desires in general, are unnatural, right? And this is something that the, that nobody's gonna like. In, in part of my project is that uh, <laughs> uh, if you're like gay, you're not gonna like what I say. If you're straight, you're not like gonna like what I say because all sexuality and all gender identity is called into question. Yeah. You well, see what I'm saying? well you're, if you take away our ability to to proof text uh, out of context. You know, then how am I going to make an argument that, you know, my particular uh, topic of the day is the thing that I'm right about? You know, mm-hmm. uh, how, how could you how dare you stop me from totally misinterpreting things and using them out of context in order to make a point about something that is not at all related? Do you mind if I hit you with another uh, sort of longish commentary <laughs> sure. about this? Yeah, of course. So this one is from uh, St. John Chrysostom. So if you're new to reading the Bible, Jerome and Chrysostom are two of some of the greatest guys you can possibly read in commentary, along with Cyril of Alexandria. These three guys are very good in all of their commentaries. So I'm going to read from Chrysostom now. For it is a lighter thing to contend with himself and his own lusts than with an evil woman. And the Lord said not, it is good, but rather assented that it is not good. However, he considered the weakness of the flesh, but he said unto them, all cannot receive this saying. That is, all are not able to do this. But then to show that it is possible, he says, for there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, as much as to say, consider, had you been so made of others, you would have lost the pleasure without getting the reward. For as the deed without the will does not constitute a sin, so a righteous act is not in the deed unless the will go with it. That, therefore, is honorable continence, not which mutilation of the body necessarily enforces, but which the will of holy purpose embraces. For they are born such, just as others are born having six or four fingers. <laughs> For if God accorded as he formed our bodies in the beginning, had continued the same order unchangeably, the working of God would have been brought into oblivion among men. The order of nature is therefore changed at times from its nature, that God the framer of nature may be had in remembrance. But none of them obtain the kingdom of heaven, save he only who has become a eunuch for Christ's sake. Whence it follows, he that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Let each calculate his own strength, whether he is able to fulfill the rules of virginity and abstinence. For in itself, continence is sweet and alluring, but each man must consider his strength, that he only that is able may receive it. This is the voice of the Lord exhorting and encouraging on his soldiers to the reward of chastity, that he who can fight might fight and conquer and triumph. Earlier I misattributed this to Jerome, but this is actually from a, a, a Chrysostom. When he says, who have made themselves eunuchs, he does not mean cutting off members, but a putting away of evil thoughts. For he that cuts off a limb is under a curse. 
for such a one undertakes the deeds of murderers and opens a door to Manichaeans who deprecate the creature and cut off the same members as do the Gentiles. For to cut off members is of the temptations of demons. But by the means of which we have spoken desires not diminished but made more urgent, for it has its source elsewhere, and chiefly in a weak purpose and an unguarded heart. For if the heart be well governed, there is no danger from the natural motions. Nor does the amputation of a member bring such peacefulness and immunity from temptation as does a bridle upon the thoughts. It kind of sounds like he's writing this to a group of people that he has to convince not to cut their penises off. Like, you guys, <laughs> you guys please, he didn't mean it that way. Stop cutting your genitals off. I mean, this was also a common practice in uh, the culture in, in different uh, pagan uh, religious cults and sects. Yeah. In fact, if you read in this book, The Manly Eunuch, uh, Kuffler explains how there is this mother of the god cult. And part of the mother of the god cult was this uh, priestly uh, group called the Galley who would ritually uh, castrate themselves in, as a part of their religious observances, right? So, you know, we don't have time to get into all the nuances of what Chrysostom is saying, right? But it's not like, again, Chrysostom is not living in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. He's living in like 407 AD, right? He's addressing a completely different culture, right? And a completely different set of circumstances. So when he talks about people being under a curse and all these things, I don't want people to get the impression that, you know, they're under a curse because they're, like, there's a specific cultural context that he's talking about. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And... Uh, to get into it takes a lot of work. But again, people don't want to do the work, as you said a moment ago. People want to just proof text something, you know. But I think this is an important teaching about about cutting off of the thoughts because it's something that applies to everyone, no matter their sexual identity or, or gender orientation, right? It doesn't say, men, you have one set of rules. Women, you have another set of rules. Uh, eunuchs, you have another set of rules. There's one standard. Yeah. And those that those that are spiritual eunuchs live out that standard in the best way that it's possible yeah. for a human. So if you're if you're married, you cut off your thoughts. Yeah. You know, you cut off your evil thoughts, and then you're a spiritual eunuch even if you're married. And I mean, Ambrose and other people talk about this. Augustine and other people talk about this. You could read about this topic. There's lots of things to read. In fact, a really good source for this is um, Michel Foucault's. One of his books in uh, history of sexuality was recently translated into English. It's called The Confessions of the Flesh. So if you want to read a really good uh, general uh, book that covers a lot of these questions, you could read Foucault's Confessions of the Flesh as well. Do you think that, so we know what that commentary thinks about someone that takes the step to remove uh, one of their organs or their limbs, but do you think that from what Jesus is teaching here, that someone that takes a step to physically alter themselves in order to better live out the calling of the spiritual eunuch, one that one that takes mm-hmm. steps to basically remove their sex drive so that they aren't then tempted to do something sinful or are distracted from their spiritual purpose by, you know, by sex or by, you know, relationship or whatever. Do you really think there's any condemnation to a person like that? I mean, it seems to me I, that Jesus I think isn't in the really Holy Fathers, that. in the Holy Fathers, there is a condemnation of that. Mm. The Holy Fathers don't want people to do that. I think there is, however, if you read, for example, Eusebius and his church history, it's debated by historians whether or not this really happened, but a lot of people believe that uh, Origen Adamantius, the great church father from Alexandria, uh, castrated himself. Yeah. But if you read in the narrations of Eusebius, 
this is kind of presented as Origen was such a fervent and zealous um, believer that he did this because he, he was really struggling and wanted to cut him, cut off his sexual desires. Yeah. You see? And it's not always portrayed as, um, how should we say, it's, there's not one flat portrayal across all of the early church fathers. And again, a lot of people, you know, what, well, what would Jesus say versus what would Chrysostom say? I mean, that is a question that you could ask. You know, it's an interesting debate to have and not one that I don't I mean, I don't think I really land anywhere on it specifically. And I'm not sure that, you know, it's easy to to pull it out of the text we have from the canonical Bible. And this is why there's so many early church commentaries on these sorts of things, because a lot of the Bible is confusing. And it can be yeah. very mystical sounding, and, and it is not terribly specific, which is another reason why it's so easy to take things out of context and, and use the Bible however you want to for whatever point you're trying to make. But I could see how someone in the early church especially, though medicine being what it was at the time, would have probably made it terrifying, if not deadly, to to take a step to purify oneself in a way that allowed you to be free from what would otherwise be a distraction. But remember, Chrysostom is arguing it doesn't actually work. No, no, I know. Right. It doesn't work because the issue is in the thoughts. Sure. It's a, it's a spiritual mental issue, right, more than it is a, a purely physical issue or a, a purely fleshly issue, we might say. Right? Yeah. Well, And, and you I know. think that is actually something to think about today. I mean, people, um, you know, people today, you know, we engage in all kinds of things. And we think it'll like help our thought process, but does it really? You know what I mean? It's kind of um, it's an open question. I got a lot of really weird advice about sexuality growing up, you know what I mean? and yeah. it did not improve my thought process, <laughs> right? Yeah. And um, uh, it's 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 also interesting this concept of the carnal desires, right? Of the cutting off of the desires. Because again, if you go, if you talk to a lot of people, a lot of the, the people that are preaching on sex, they're going to say, well, you know, young men, we know you like the ladies. They need to cause you not to stumble. Right. Mm-hmm. And they do this kind of corny, uh, like pagan, you know, stoic reasoning stuff. It's not even stoicism. It's not even paganism. I mean, those traditions are more advanced than what these guys are doing. Right. Sure. But this is basically what they want to say is anything we can see in ev- evolutionary psychology, we're just going to put that in Christian terms. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's just like, it's basically Bronze Age pervert theology is what people are preaching. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that what would it, what might have been lacking in perspective from the early church was what we know about the human body and the endocrine system and how the hormones that are generated in that area do actually have a, a marked and you know, measurable effect on the way that people act. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, of course, this is another conversation, I know, and probably one that we could get sidelined again for another hour, hour and a half. But um, I think that, to me, and in what I'm reading, not again, not that anyone asked, but it does seem to me like, if that's what you have to do, then do it right to, to to take that step just because if that's the only way that you can feel like you can be free of it and sure yeah those thoughts exist in your mind right they're not in your testicles but uh they are influenced by that there's a reason why people were doing that in the first place 
I think, and this is something that's kind of, you know, what do people do now? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure how to apply all of this stuff to the present day. I'm still working it out in my mm -hmm. own mind. I do think though, that there's some very clear elements. The first element is that what we're called to do is not different based on our gender or sexual identity. Mm. So it's not like there's one standard for men and one standard for women and one standard for non-binary. There's only one standard for all Christians, right? The second thing is that we are called to struggle against the flesh, to struggle against our passions, our sinful thoughts, our evil desires. And just like our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, it's not your testicles, so to speak, that are the issue. So I, may, I might disagree with you. I don't think that that's really the correct uh, reading. I think the reading is more to do with our desires. And I agree with Chrysostom and with Jerome that part of the spiritual life, part of the life of asceticism and martyrdom, I mean, Paul talk, talks about this mysterious thorn in the flesh, right? What is the thorn in the flesh, right? Augustine, if you read the Confessions, it's clear that Augustine is a, is a, a man suffering very deeply from his uh, passionate desires, right? And overcoming that, overcoming those desires, overcoming those temptations, I think is an important part of recapitulating the life of Christ in our own lives, right? Of taking up the cross and following Jesus. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think that is important. And I think um, when it comes to all of the gender sexual identity stuff, again, my focus has mostly been on heterosexuality. Yeah. Because heterosexuality is just assumed to be a certain way. And that's normal and normative. And I think the teaching with the spiritual unit causes, calls that into question. I think it calls it into radical question. Yeah, Paul uses this phrase in Christ, to live in Christ or to be in Christ a lot. And um, it's kind of... Not exactly, but kind of implying that, you know, to be in Christ is to be like Christ in some way or another. It, it has other implications too, but it's to live out your life in a way that is Christ-like. Mm. And what better way to be Christ-like and to uh, wrestle with one's own uh, evil desires than to be sexless like Christ was? Not sexless mm. from a, again, from a, not from a physical perspective, but from mm. a, a behavioral perspective and from a social perspective and not sexless. Now, Cuffler is going to argue against me because I'm, I'm more speaking in the tradition of the church, right? Cuffler is a secular historian, mm -hmm. right? So if you read the Manly Eunuch, Cuffler is going to say, oh, this was a development, but, you know, it could have developed otherwise, blah, 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 right? I think when we look at the saints, right, like the, the example of these female saints I've been bringing up. Um, there's so many of them, I don't even need to name them off. Like there's, uh, I could pull up a list here in a second and, and give it if you wanted. But if you just look up, you know, uh, transvestite saint or, uh, you know, you can find a lot of these people. Yeah. Why are they praised by the church? Because they go to the nth degree in their pursuit of purity and holiness, right? It's not a problem that these women take on a male identity, or take on a eunuch identity. That's not condemned in any of their hagiography. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So clearly, the, the early church was not, they didn't see that as a problem. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. There's... So if the, the woman wants to cut off her hair and passes a eunuch, that's fine. In fact, we'll praise her for it. 
because they're yeah because they're eschewing what would what would be like yeah. assumed to be our fallen uh, fleshly urge to sexually reproduce and and you know live out our lives in that manner and rather than indulging in that path which isn't condemned inherently but isn't elevated um, you know these people changed their lives in a way that basically disqualified them from participating in that aspect of their society and their yeah. culture. They do it intentionally to be freed from the limits of their gendered identity, right? Yeah. They're trying to escape the gender identity. They're trying to get out of that box. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They're put in a box. Their spiritual possibility is put in a box because they're a woman. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so they need to get out of the box. And the way they get out of the box, you know, they want to get to as being a spiritual eunuch, Right. But the way to get to spiritual eunuch for them involves passing as a real eunuch, like as yeah. a fleshly eunuch. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so that, I think, is that's already a crazy and radical image for a lot of Christians to accept. But then when it comes to the men who have literally castrated themselves, like let's assume Origen did castrate himself, just for the sake of the argument. He went on to have an incredible theological career. He's not, like, excluded from the church because he castrated himself. No. It, it might have worked. I mean? worked for him. Who knows? I don't know. I don't personally know whether he really castrated himself or not. You see what I, I'm saying? I love this this use of um, like uh, the femininity being or the the femaleness being a box, um, because yeah. I think that if we can view our social um, ideas of what what ought to be a male and what ought to be a female, uh, if we can open those boxes and stop letting that be such a prison. I mean, I listen to people mm-hmm. like Mark Driscoll or th- these masculinity gospel preachers, and I all I hear is like a uh, cope. They're like, well, yeah. this is my Pure body cope. and this is what I this is what I'm doing with it. So I mm-hmm. guess this is this is how God made me and this is how I'm supposed to act. And like, isn't it great that I can chop down a tree? Like that's um, if your entire spiritual uh, direction is based on you explaining away or necessitating certain aspects of your sex your physical body then you are already off track from what we are supposed to be doing in this world it's not about you like let's say that you are trans today right like let's say or you are intersex or you are non-binary in my view based on what i've read of the scriptures and of the holy fathers you should be able to follow the same teaching that's for everybody else yeah you're not excluded you're not forgotten you see what i'm saying you're not outside of uh god's love or anything like that that's absurd and people want to put that on people and that's evil you see what i'm saying yeah it's evil to do that i think the the main issue that we have to be honest with you as christian i'm speaking now as a christian i think the main issue that we have is that heterosexuality became so assumed and the gender identity sort of matrix of modernity became so assumed that it's hard for people to go back and recover a properly Christian conception of identity. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think that the gender, and, and maybe in this way, I'm, this is maybe a hot take, but I actually think that rather than simply affirm whatever the society is saying about gender and sexual identity, that we need to have our own properly Christian response. And I think that's going to look a lot more like um, freeing people from these boxes than it is going to be, okay, we're going to make sure the boxes are nice and pristine. Yeah. You, you or, very, or very sturdy. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think like that- a Christian. If you're a Christian, you should not treat a man or a woman any differently. No. You should not treat a trans person or a cisgendered person or any of these people any differently. Yeah. Right. There's no difference. Now we can talk about brother and sister in Christ, and yeah, maybe sure. If I'm like you know four feet taller than you or whatever, like obviously there are differences between people. It's not like there's no difference whatsoever, right? But in terms of the spiritual life, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but female. all are one, yep. right? And yeah. why they're all one? Because the I remember in the story in the passage, the male and the female become one in the marriage bond. Right, and the kingdom is for the children, right? Who are not, you know, obviously they don't have this adult sexual identity, right? Yeah. So I, I just, I don't know. I think, I think this is actually an interesting topic that more people should take up, should think about, and we should not assume that the Bible is some kind of reactionary document that is going to, you know, uh, confirm what the, you know, homophobes and all these people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. We shouldn't just assume that the Bible is going to come out sounding like Mark Driscoll or any of these masculinity preachers. <laughs> well, I think that, it doesn't. I think that it's only a moderately spicy take to say that that uh, that that sort of thing shouldn't matter to Christians because I think at our, at the heart of Christianity is that we are not of this world. We are of the mm-hmm. kingdom. We are we are in God's family, and therefore all of the rules are different. And, and not just that, but like how we move in the world, how we treat each other needs to be different. And so, yeah, you should be treating men and women the same way. You should be treating eunuchs and, and like trans How do we know? What does it mean to be a human being for a Christian, right? It's Christ who reveals to us what it means to be truly God and truly man. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? And that I don't look not... at like baboons and say, okay, that's what it means to be a man. Yeah. You know what I mean? I better beat my wife upside the head with a big rock. You know, to show my dominance, right? There, there are people that talk about, in the, in, you know, I'm not going to give you all the quotes because I don't have all my notes in front of me. But there are church fathers that talk about how in a truly Christian wo- a marriage, the woman is freed mm-hmm. from the authority of her husband. The curse of the woman being subjected in the fall is overcome, even now in this life. Right? So again, how do we apply this to trans people? That's a big topic. It would take a long time. How do yeah. you apply this to non-binary maybe people? Yeah, right? maybe don't. It's it, it's going to take a long time to, to to hash all these things out. But I think as a beginning point, we need to say that, whoa, 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 the standards of our society are not matching what's in the Bible and in the church tradition, mm-hmm. and theologically, they're highly questionable. Yeah, does that make any sense? It's kind of a trite um, saying, but uh, you know, churches often say like, "Come as you are." Or all are welcome mm-hmm. here, yeah. and and I think that that's that can be easily manipulated and used to kind of trick people into coming into a place that might not actually welcome them and things like that. That's another again another. If people aren't actually welcome, that's a huge issue. Well, exactly. If you and put all are welcome and you're not actually welcome, that's a huge issue. That's at the heart of it is that all are welcome because in Christ, in the in the family of God, in this mm-hmm. church, we are all separate from the hang-ups and the baggage and the things that that weigh us down in our bodies we are more than that and we're capable of more than that and we can be better than that and that i think is the the ascent like sort of the core of of what jesus is saying here and the prophecy remember the promise of god to the eunuch right Mm -hmm. 
that even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Right? An everlasting name. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? The eunuch hears the gospel. He says, look, I, there's some a puddle. Can you put me in it? <laughs> right? Yeah. And he's converted and he's rejoicing and he's redeemed. You see? And I think that's that has to be our model. That has to be our like mental image of what we're called to do. Yeah. Right? And I mean, we can talk about monasticism. You know, earlier I talked about early saints who would pass as women. I mean, what that have end of, ended up developing in is special communities for women and men. Right? So you'd ended up having gender separated uh, or sex separated, however you want to talk about it. Uh, communities, right? And even today, there are communities of people living as spiritual eunuchs. Mm -hmm. And you can go to church and you can meet a spiritual eunuch. You can go meet a monk or a nun, right? And I think people should, you know, clearly in modern society with co contemporary values, the numbers of monastics has decreased significantly, right? Because our society is inimical. In fact, our society is more straight-jacketed than the ancient world was on a lot of these topics. Yeah. The pressure to fit into the box of man and woman is extremely strong in our culture, even with all the gender variants that we have. Well, self-denial right? is, is, I think, seen as impossible in the world that we live in now. And, yeah, and it's, we're it's encouraged impossible. often to go deeper into the, the physical representations of ourselves. We're encouraged to go deeper mm -hmm. into, you know, you be you. Um, and yeah. and while I don't think people should live with a sense of shame uh, about who they are, you'll notice no. that the eunuch isn't not a eunuch after he's saved, right? Uh, God doesn't. He's still a eunuch. Yeah, God doesn't slap a penis back on him and go, "Hey, all right, you're fixed, you're healed now." It's not like the the paralytic yeah. at the pool that that Jesus heals. You know, it, it, it's mm -hmm. it's that through that process of being sanctified, you are now in this group as you are who you are. Yeah. Um, so don't preoccupy yourself with oh. what was or with what, you know, is temporary, what will be dust. Yeah. The idea, I mean, like, let's just be honest about this. I mean, people in the ancient world, they would, you know, they would have sex with men. They would have sex with women. They would do a little of this, a little of that. You know, it's normal. It's whatever, right? We have so much more anxiety today. We have so much more anxiety and we're so fixated on our, our self-conception. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think I think we need to uh, talk more about the spiritual eunuch, about what that means, about our identities in Christ, and not in um, any other name, right? Yeah. We have an everlasting name that is above all names, and to free people from this extremely what I perceive Western society to be, which is extremely um, difficult for people to survive to be honest with you the the um, what people are put through in our society in terms of gender and sex and all this stuff is extremely difficult for them to live whatsoever yeah be you they think, be they cisgendered or transgender or yeah, whatever or, in yeah. any in every degree in we are all in way. a box I mean, look, yeah look at what happens when a, like a woman takes an interest in theology like beth moore has been just dragged through the mud for no reason because she like loves God and wants to read the Bible and you know has mm. some enthusiasm and some gift to talk, and people are just treating her like dirt. Every you know what I mean? Like yeah. she just gets dragged through the mud all the time. 
And she's just some, like, you know, some Baptist uh, lady who, I guess she became Anglican finally because it got, you know, people treated her so bad. You know what I mean? But it's just like, if you can't accept somebody who loves, you know what I mean? Like, you love God, you should just be in the church. There's this beautiful article, actually, about um, some associates of Pope Francis in Buenos Aires who have a like special ministry with people who are, you know, in prostitution or living on the street or things like this. Mm-hmm. And many of the people involved are, you know, LGBTQIA+, etc. And they're just treated normally. And the women in the story, you know, they talk about coming into the church and feeling accepted and feeling loved and feeling the love of God and saying, you know, some people might look at me weird, but I know how God looks at me, right? I think that that's some, one of the freeing things about faith is that we know that God is eternal, right? God is perfect. God is love. And God is not conditioned by anything. There's nothing you can do to change the fact that God loves you, right? Mm-hmm. Right. God's love is unconditional for everybody. And people should know that. And that, that's what allows us to trust God and have faith. You see what I'm saying? That was actually part of the message in the sermon that uh, my church had today. Uh, what was the message it's a ucc church oh uh, the well it's actually it's funny because i have a sweatshirt from i need god in in every moment of my life that's an instagram page uh and it says god loves me and there's nothing i can do about it and uh and that actually came up that very phrase came up in the in the sermon today and here we're here we're talking about it again no but i think it's absolutely true they do and and that um you do so much better at evangelizing when that's the message that you start with, yeah. not, uh, oh, God, I saw this, what must have been an 8 by 10 foot uh, banner that someone had uh, made of what the sins are and where in the Bible you can prove that they're sins, and all of these sins are <laughs> damnable sins. And it's like, what, where do you plan to go with this, with someone who yeah. comes into your church, they just put down the bottle, you know, and they, they are they are at a point in their lives that they just need love. And the yeah. first thing that you're going to do is tell them you are beyond saving. There is nothing I mean, what's nothing the example of faith you. in the New Testament? It's Rahab the prostitute, right, who accepted the spies of Israel. You know what I mean? Yeah. All she did was help some spies. <laughs> and that's an example of great faith. Yeah. You know? And it, it, it can begin small, and it can begin with the, just uh, the mustard seed, you know, this little this little beginning but and i don't know in my in my view um a lot more work is needed on this topic clearly we've yeah. not covered everything we've not exhausted the text or whatever i don't know is there anything else ariel you want to talk about i think i think we kind of hit the points that i wanted to to hit are you writing a book about this right now what you said your project no. so you've been you were referring to it as oh, a i'm project. just reading i'm just reading oh, i'm okay. studying this in general i'm not writing a book on it it's just um i think you could like for me for, for me, the, the thing about the spiritual eunuch is that the spiritual eunuch is this key to un- understanding how to... Because gender identity and sexual orientation are just not biblical concepts. Mm-hmm. And they're not ancient concepts. They're yeah. modern, contemporary concepts. So we need to somehow bridge the gap right between these two things. And for me, one of the things I love about this manly eunuch book is it, beca- it gives this conception of manliness, right, in the early church fathers and this concept of the spiritual eunuch, which is like analogous, right? So instead of talking about sexual identity and 
uh, uh, sexual orientation and gender identity, we talk about manliness. And the ancient Romans were very anxious about their manliness and their manhood, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And defending their manhood. And these concepts, we can see a kind of analogy, right? But what we have to do is trace that whole genealogy, and this is part of Foucault's project, obviously, is trace that whole genealogy to link them and then have some kind of way of saying, okay, theologically, we're going to address gender identity and sexual orientation. In my view, the conservatives make a mistake to just say, um, you know, I can pick out a couple of verses that say, don't lie with a, a man like a woman, and that means, you know, homosexuality was condemned in the Bible. Well, there are no homosexuals in the Bible to condemn. There's a lot of issues with that interpretation. Yeah. The liberals that just want to say, well, everything's okay, you know, whatever culture says we'll just accept, well, that's not really a theological account either. No. Right? It's a lack of one. Now, yeah. it's, it's a lack of one. Now, you might say, well, I prefer the affirming church because I'm this or that, and, you know, I'm not you. I'm not standing in judgment over you. Who am I to judge, as the Pope said, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not part of an affirming church. I'm an Orthodox Christian. We don't uh, do gay marriages or anything like that. But for me, in order to address this topic, we need to be able to actually have a strong theological response. We need to be able to actually give a good reason that actually takes into account the reality of what people are living today mm-hmm. and actually have a coherent account of scriptures, of our understanding of God and you know, theology and the tradition and the church fathers and all these things. And what a lot of people do, like the conservatives, you know, what they've done, there's this whole controversy about the eternal subordination of the sun where they read their sort of cultural uh, culture war stuff about men and women into the Trinity itself. Yeah. And so they like do, they do this whole weird by proxy thing. Well, in order to say that women should be subservient to men, the son of God is like eternally submissive to the father. And that's, what's grounding the submission of women to men. I don't want to do that kind of move. Yeah. And it's not really, yeah. And it's not really a, uh, it, it, you can construct that argument, but it won't stand. It's built on sand. Uh, yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It doesn't um, even make any sense. Why? Why would that have anything to do with men and women, right? So I'm uh, nobody's going to like what I have to say because I'm not going to make <laughs> the liberals or the conservatives happy, and I'm just going to be condemned for uh, this episode and for everything well, that I'm doing. Don't you think that that means that in some way you're on to something if you if I don't you know. can get we'll it? Right. <laughs> we'll see. And again, um, I don't really think I'm doing anything that original. Like, this is all in the text. It's all in the Fathers. We just actually sure. have to care to read them. You know, mm-hmm. if you read against Jovinian, Jerome goes on about this for a long time. Right? Ambrose has a, a whole treatise on virginity. Augustine has a treatise on the good of marriage. Right? Uh, Chrysostom has a, has a treatise. Uh, there's actually a book you can buy called On Marriage and the Family Life by John Chrysostom. It's published by uh, St. Vladimir Seminary Press. Um, Gregory of Nyssa has this wonderful text on the making of man where he talks about how sexuality actually sexuality the difference between uh, male, male and female God created male and female provisionally knowing they would fall yeah, and need that but that ultimately in the end we will not be divided right that we're working towards this greater unity and that's part of what the spiritual unit represents is the eschatological end of man being uh, one in in as we said earlier. Yeah, there's you know, a, they shall not be married nor be given in marriage. There's a reading of Genesis one that uh, in in the first creation of man, when it said that God created them male and female, it's not male comma and female. It's God created them male and female. 
in one. Yeah. And I mean, Adam originally in, in Genesis two, mm-hmm. right? In, in, when 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 Adam is created from the dust, there's only one of him. Yep. There's just Adam, That's and humanity. then there's male and female. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this is actually interesting. So to what degree is man humanity and humanity man? Right. Are we going to go with Monique Wittig and the ancient Romans and be like, man just is universal and there's only one gender? Or are we going to say there's two genders and then talk about an abstract humanity? You see, I'm still not sure what, what yeah. approach. I like talking about man because I think it's more poetic, you know, but sure. a lot of people think that's exclusionary. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Ari? I've talked maybe too much. I'm no, sorry. no, it's okay. I'm, I'm trying to find a neat way to to wrap up because we're out of time but I, I don't know that there is a neat way to wrap up um, because I feel like I could talk t- to you about this for another few hours to be honest I'm, I'm <laughs> well, we might have to come back and talk about other passages I would like that I would like that a lot well, you, should read, willing, you should read the be. confession of the flesh yeah and confessions of the flesh by Michel Foucault mm-hmm. and the manly eunuch by Matthew Kuffler okay. I hope I'm saying his name correctly if Matthew Kuffler if you're reading I'm sorry right <laughs> If you read these two books, and then we can talk about some of the passages if you want. We didn't even get really into the mother of the god cult and the galley and the castration. No. And the, like, throwing the castrated member on the door of a house. And then the women of the house come out and give the women's clothes to the galley. And then the galley dons the women's clothes. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the Roman context that's fascinating. But, um well, yeah, if you're willing, I would, I would love to have you back on. And we can, we can do that. Oh, I appreciate it. We'll, we'll try to do that. Do you um do you want to do any plugs or anything? Throw some social media handles out there, anything like that. Uh, just at Henry J Wallace, uh, HTTPS colon slash slash www.formspodcast.com. dot mm. uh, It's on YouTube, Apple, all the stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm. That's basically all I got to say. I, I guess. Yeah, just thank you, and I. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Absolutely. Thanks for thanks for joining me. I know the time difference was a little uh, a little difficult for you, so um, I'll uh, we'll find a better slot next time. And and oh, thank you cool. again. This this was awesome. So thank you so much. No problem. Take care. This week's poem is by Mary Oliver. It's called Mindful. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the word? The oceans shine, the prayers that are made out of grace. Thanks, everybody. I never saw all the formulas I created. I know your heart more than just the law to pay the bills I want to walk inside the cool of the day with simple affections of your heart I wanted everything in nine to five and 
deeper time. Sometimes I'll make life a simple self.